0: scripture reading today is from the gospel of luke chapter 10 verses 38 to 42 and if you would turn in your pew bibles you can find that um, passage on page 869 so let's turn there today let us stand now for the reading of god's word Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. This is the reading of God's most holy word. Amen. You may be seated. Our Father and our God. We look to you as the fountainhead of all that is true, the fountainhead of all that is good, of all that is beautiful. We pray that the truth which is revealed to us this day in your holy word may grip our souls and profoundly influence the way in which we live live out our faith before you. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, as many of you may have noticed of, of late, We live in a world filled with logical fallacies, and one of the most prevalent of these distorted forms of reasoning is the false dichotomy, a fallacy in which the spectrum of all possible opinions is misrepresented as an either-or choice between two mutually exclusive things. You've likely heard a lot of these today, if you're paying any attention. Some of the more familiar ones go as such. You either vote Democrat or you don't support women's rights. Or on the other side, you either vote Republican or you don't support traditional values. Or perhaps the one you've heard a lot lately is either you're either for the war or you're against our troops. Emperor Palpatine in Star Wars famously said, just as one of our presidents, the probably most prevalent one, you're either for us or you are against us. These false dichotomies are all too often used to distort and to oversimplify issues by using an unfavorable consequence to change the minds of those who disagree with us. Well, today we come to one of those passages of Scripture that has so often been misrepresented and misunderstood, leading to an often perceived false dichotomy within the Christian faith. And in reference to today's passage, you made have heard others say something like, I'm more of a Martha Christian. The need to serve and to love others weighs more heavily on me than learning about all that doctrine, than learning about God. I'm more like Martha. Or you may have other, heard others say something like, I'm a Mary type of Christian. I am more interested in learning more and more about the teachings of Jesus and interested in gaining a deeper understanding and fuller knowledge about who he is and what he has accomplished. I want to dig deeper into the scriptures that I may come more and more to appreciate what God has done in redemptive history. And if we assume this false choice between the importance of knowing God through his word and loving our neighbor, then we entirely miss the point of these final verses in Luke chapter 10. The point is not for us to try to figure out whether we are like Martha or Mary. God's word does not give us that either-or choice. We are called to both devotion to the word of God and to service to others. And as we walk through this passage today, in order to gain a better understanding of what our Lord is teaching, we have to first understand the context and where this passage falls in Luke's gospel. We, were, if we remember, we look back to the dedication, the beginning of this gospel, and um, Luke's, Luke addresses Theophilus, and he says together, verse chapter one, um, chapter one, verse one, and so much as, and, and so much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of these things um, that have been accomplished among us, just as those for the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, of, of the word have delivered them to us. It seems good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. You see, what we have here in Luke's gospel is the result of one of the contemporaries of the Apostle Paul Uh, Taking his time to interview eyewitnesses and ministers who were alive during the time of Jesus. And he takes these interviews and he compiles a narrative that would allow us to have a certainty about our faith. That's what Luke has set out to do here. Starting with the birth of Christ and taking us all the way to his ascension into heaven, Luke gives us a very detailed narrative of the life of Christ. The chapter in which we find ourselves today, chapter 10, takes place at the beginning of our Lord's journey when he's leaving his, his initial um, ministry and heading towards Jerusalem. And in knowing that the retelling of the events here we have today taking place in the home of Martha occurs at the end of chapter 10, it's important that we realize that the Gospels are not just some random collection of unconnected stories. It's helpful that we know how this passage is linked with the passage that come immediately before it. Sometimes, um, we sometimes, at least myself, can read the Gospels as if they can, and they can seem like just a collection of stories and uh, parables that are arranged in no particular order. But that just isn't the case. We need to recognize that the Holy Spirit has ordered these writings in a very specific way for our benefit. At the beginning of chapter 10, we see that the Lord sends out the 72, the 72 apostles. Two of them, two by two to every town. And he sends them out and he tells them to heal the sick and to proclaim the kingdom of God. To proclaim that the kingdom of God is now near. And in verse 17 of chapter 10, the 72 return and they're amazed and they're rejoicing, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus knowing That they, just as we are today, are so wired to focus upon the law, so wired to focus on the things that we do, admonishes them in verse 20 when he tells them, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. As the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, puts it, in this verse, our Savior, to refine that joy and to pre- prevent it from degenerating into pride, bids them rather rejoice that their names were written in heaven. He conducted their contemplations to the glorious doctrine of election that grateful thoughts might sober them after successful work. He bids them to consider, the, to consider themselves as debtors to the grace which reveals unto babes the mysteries of God. For he would not allow their new positions as workers to make them forget that they were the chosen of God and therefore debtors. You see, he is reminding them that it's not about what they were able to do. It's about what Christ has done. And Westminster Confession of Faith states, chapter 3, article 3, by the decree of God for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestined unto everlasting life. But he was, but he was the one who in eternity he was the one, in eternity past, who wrote our names in the book of life. Not based on those, uh, the services we would accomplish on the good that we would do. But, but, but based on what he would accomplish through his life, death, and resurrection. And after the return of the 72, the scene switches now in chapter 10. To verse, in verse 25, to Jesus being tested by someone who was considered to be very wise... ESV translates this as a lawyer, someone who was known to be an expert in the Mosaic law. the lawyer asked Jesus, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And in this question, he was trying to lighten the law of God in order to feel justified to himself, justified to himself, justified to God by his own works. Jesus responds to this question with the parable of the Good Samaritan. He really reveals in this parable what loving your neighbor really means. His words convicting the lawyer under the weight of God's law, revealing them his need for a Savior, knowing that he cannot do these things as Christ has commanded. In order to prevent those who heard this parable, the Good Samaritan, from being turned inwardly and imagining that their works of service were the only focus in the a Christian life. The Holy Spirit brings us this passage that takes place at the home of Martha and Mary. Again, Spurgeon goes on, the Holy Spirit meaning thereby to teach us that while we ought to abound in service and to do good abundantly to our fellow men, we must not fail to worship in spiritual reverence, reverence in meekness and discipleship and in quiet contemplation. So who were Martha and Mary. Well, it's likely safe for us to assume that they're the same Martha and Mary that we meet in chapter 11 of John's gospel. There we learn that Martha and Mary, they lived in a village called Bethany. And they were the sisters of Lazarus. Remember, Lazarus had died. And he was raised from his tomb, called out of his tomb by the very words of God. And you see, our Lord had a very close and personal relationship with these two sisters as well as their brother. It's not as if he had entered the home of someone he did not know or may have not recognized. And knowing this, we may find the manner in which Luke refers to her in this verse, in verse 38, somewhat strange. He writes, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. It almost seems as if Luke thought Martha was just some random villager. But in a very significant way, in a somewhat unnoticed way, The way in which Luke references Martha in this verse adds a tremendous amount of support to the reliability of his gospel. We need to remember that Luke was not an eyewitness uh, um, to the ministry of Jesus. We know that Luke wrote the book of Acts, and from there we learn that he was a traveling companion of Paul. We learn from Colossians chapter 4 that he was a physician and a Gentile. And as I mentioned earlier, we learned in chapter 1 that Luke compiled his narrative by interviewing eyewitnesses to these events who were there from the beginning. He's simply relaying what eyewitnesses had reported. And although we don't know for certain, but it, could be, it possibly could be the first time that Luke had ever heard of Martha and Mary. What I'm getting at here is that the manner in which Luke introduces Martha is what we should speak expect given the way in which this gospel was written it was based on an eyewitness account of someone who was there someone who had still been alive during the time that luke was writing moving back to our text after martha after martha welcomes jesus into her house we see the reaction of his sister mary in verse 39 and she had a and she had a sister called mary who sat at the lord's feet and listened to his teaching now it's important that we stop right here for a moment, and we capture the significance of Mary sitting at the Lord's feet. You see, at that time in Jewish culture, to sit at a rabbi's feet meant that you were that rabbi's disciple. Remember, in Acts twenty-two, thirty-three, the Apostle Paul tells us that he was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. A, Jewish, uh, a leader in the Jewish Sanhedrin and a very famous, well respected expert in the Hebrew scriptures. And in those days, rabbis did not take on women as disciples. The Jewish religion of that day was largely male dominated. Women were not permitted to become disciples in order to participate in the furtherance of the faith. But you see, that all changed with the coming of Jesus Christ. As Michael Kroger writes in his book Christianity at the Crossroads even though the 12 disciples and Jesus himself were all male the historical evidence suggests that women played a substantial role in the earliest stages of Christianity women advanced the Christian cause in many ways they functioned as missionaries evangelists teachers and helpers of the poor there are even indications that there are even some indications that women may have substantially outnumbered men and the first few centuries of the early Christian movement. And what do we have here? We have Mary, sitting at the feet of Jesus, knowing that it was he, and he alone who had the words of eternal life. She was hanging on to his every word, not wanting to risk missing missing any of his utterances. So captivated by his teaching, that she didn't even recognize the work that was going on around her. Her sister busy serving tables and others eating. You see, Mary was seeking nourishment for her soul. And although those around her may have been busy eating, she could not have possibly thought of food at such a time. She knew who it was that had sat before her. And what does Mary do for us here? She gives us a glimpse of what it really means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You see, it's not about trying to to gain his approval through our diligent works of service. It's about resting in who he is, receiving his word, knowing him to be our only hope, our only comfort in life and in death. Now we look at her sister Martha, moving on to verse 40. We see the reaction of Mary's older sister Martha, who was the head of the household. And her reaction was quite different from that of Mary's. Verse 40, but Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up and said to him, Lord, do do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. It's important now that we stop right here and we catch ourselves before we're too hard on Martha. She's often been given a very bad rap throughout Christian history. As if she was someone who was deficient in her faith or less faithful than her sister going back to John 11 after the death of her brother Lazarus, we need to remind ourselves that it was Martha who ran out of the house when he entered the village to meet Jesus. What was Mary doing? She sat in the house. And of course, Martha would have been distracted. I mean, how often does the promised Messiah pop into your house for a visit after a long day's work? You know, In such a situation, I'd be running to the freezer, making sure I pulled out the very best ribeyes to throw on the grill, making sure that that red wine was served at the perfect temperature. I'd probably be running around making sure that no one puts the potato salad in the gumbo, ending up with mayonnaise soup. (laughs) It's important that we understand that there's nothing wrong or inappropriate about what Martha was doing. She was trying to be a good host. And in Jewish culture, that was a very important thing. She was seeking to honor the Lord. And when a guest, especially a fellow believers, enters our own homes, we should do the same. Look at one of the last things that Jesus tells his disciples before he goes off to the cross at Calvary. John 13, verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also or to love one another. But this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have loved one another. Who should we love? One another. Why? So that people will know that we are his disciples. That's evangelism. That's evangelism. That's what the Lord teaches us to do. It's not just things like um, handing out Bible tracts or street preaching. Preaching. All those are excellent things, and many have been saved by those measures. We only need to look at Acts chapter 2. What was Peter doing if he wasn't street preaching? But very often, we lose sight of the other important aspects of evangelism, aspects that are commanded to us by Jesus himself. Martha was being a faithful servant to the church, the faithful servant that the Lord had commanded her to be. But where Martha stumbles is that she becomes so consumed with trying to justify herself before the Lord by her works that she fails to recognize the importance of what Jesus Christ had to offer. She sees Mary at the feet of Jesus, and she falls into self-pity. She starts to compare herself to Mary. Don't we do the same? Don't we do the same thing when we're acting self-righteous? We start comparing ourselves to others. And that is so dangerous. That is what is so dangerous about relying on our works in order to justify ourselves before God. We look around and we become frustrated with others who we perceive to not be as working as hard or effectively as we are. And that frustration can lead us down a very dark path. In our self righteousness, we can start to gossip and to slander and to do harm to our neighbors. We become overly critical. Before we know it, those works that were meant to show how much we loved our neighbors and each other can lead us to fall into sin, driving us further and further away from God and neighbor, further and further away from that peace that surpasses all understanding. Notice. Notice that Jesus does not admonish Martha for her diligent service to others. He admonishes her only when she demands that Mary be pulled away from what is most important. As Anglican deacon Nick Davis writes when commenting on this passage, what's wrong with Martha's frenzied pace and trying to get Jesus to light a fire under Mary? The problem is that it misses the heart of discipleship in which we do not first and foremost serve Jesus. He has come to serve us. For even the Son of Man came not to serve, but to serve and to give his life for ransom as many. Mark 10 verse 45 You see, where Martha went wrong is that she didn't put first things first. She failed to recognize the necessity of being nourished by Christ, nourished by His word, nourished by sitting at his feet in worship and adoration. Moving on to verses 41 and 42, we see our large response. But the Lord answered her, "Martha, Martha." You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. I want us to notice for a second the very first words of our Lord to Martha. What is he saying? Martha, Martha. I can count four times in the New Testament when Jesus starts an address with the same sort of name repetition. Once to Simon Peter, once to Saul of Tarsus, once to the city of Jerusalem, and here in verse 41 to Martha. And each time there's not only an indication of a cherished relationship, but that the words that follow carry extreme weight. And we have been wise to pay close attention here. Our Lord does not dismiss Martha's complaint. He acknowledges her in anxiety and distress. And he even goes on to add even more weight to what he is About to say, proclaiming, Martha, but one thing is necessary. He's not saying that Martha's focus on service was was bad and Mary's focus was good. As R.C. Sproul says, it's not a contrast, but a comparative analysis we have here. Mary was sitting before the feet of our Lord, hearing the words of the one true, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, everlasting God. She was worshiping at his feet. What could possibly be more necessary than that? It was he and he alone who had the words of eternal life. It was only Christ who was able to succeed where Adam failed, fulfilling every letter of God's holy law on our behalf. It was only he who paid our due penalty for sin, enduring the full, unmitigated wrath of God, taking our sin and placing it on himself. It was only Christ who was risen from the grave, ascended into heaven, sent to us his spirit and now sits at the right hand of God the father almighty ruling on our behalf and at the end of this fading evil age loved ones he will return and he will wipe away every teardrop from the eyes of those who have heard his word and trust in him after going through this passage today how should we respond Some of us may be wondering, what does this story have to do with ministry in Opelousas in 2023? Moreover, what does it have to do with us here at Hope Presbyterian Church? And hearing the words of our Lord to Martha, how should we respond? Well, since his bodily ascension into heaven, we no longer have the opportunity to sit at the feet of Jesus and have him teach and comfort us himself. Although he is currently not physically present with his church, he has sent us the Holy Spirit just as he promised in John sixteen thirteen through 14. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, Therefore, that, therefore that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And that primary means in which the Holy Spirit works faith into us is by the preaching of his word. Romans ten, Romans chapter ten, verses fourteen through seventeen. The apostle Paul writing to the church to the church in Rome. How then when they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him in whom they have not heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, but they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, "Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes by hearing and hearing to the word of Christ. Our own Westminster confession our own Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number 88, question and answers number 88. The question: How are the outward and ordinary means by which Christ imparts us uh, what? Are the, um, what are the outward and ordinary means by which Christ imparts to us the benefits of redemption? Answer. The outward and ordinary means by which Christ imparts to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially his, the word, the sacraments, and the prayer. All these are made effectual to his chosen ones for salvation. Moving on, it gives more clarification. Question 89 How is the word made effectual to salvation? By the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God makes the reading of His Word, but especially the preaching of it an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and building them up in holiness and comfort through faith to salvation. That's evangelism. That's evangelism. Sounds an awful like what we're talking about here happens in our worship service. As R.C. Sproul says, every worship service we attend is in an audience with the king of kings. It's he who at the beginning of the service calls us into his presence, calls us to worship him and to hear from him. And, we are, and when we are weighing our works of service over the attentiveness to the word of God, deeds over creeds, as some may say, we're not given an either-or choice. But as we learn from today's passage, one thing does take priority over the other. And for us today, that one thing is the ministry of the word and sacrament. Each week on that day that the Lord has set aside for us, we're invited to come into his presence. And he sends his workers to prepare his meal for us. And we are to feast on his word, to participate in his body and blood through the Lord's Supper. John chapter 6, for whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Those of us who diligently read our Bibles are likely familiar with another set of verses written by Luke that stress the importance of of, of the ministry of God's word. Remember in Acts chapter 6 when the apostles are first ordained to service. Remember that the Hellenists were lodging a complaint that their widows were being ignored in the daily distribution. And what did the apostles say in the beginning of verse 2? And the 12 and the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, "It is not right that we should give up the preaching. We'll give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to the prayer and the ministry of the word." And as a congregation, this is what we should expect to be the first priority of our pastors. While at the same time, service to others should never be neglected, that is why God has given us the office of deacon. And that doesn't mean that the deacons are to be the only ones doing the work, but they they are ordained to oversee the work. They are to ensure that the resources of the church are used wisely and effectively. This is not something we should put on our pastors. It's not even something we should put on our elders. They're in charge of your spiritual soul. This is work that was given in the New Testament to deacons, to a separate office of the church. So where? Where should we focus our aim today? Such a question brings to mind one of C.S. Lewis's famous quotes, and he has quite a bit of them, as you may know. In mere Christianity, Lewis goes on to write when pondering those Christians who had done the most for the present world. He says these words. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. If I may take a little bit of liberty today and modify C.S. Lewis's quote in light of the message that we just heard. I should like to say it this way. Aim at Christ, and you will get good works thrown in. Aim at good works, and you will get neither. Because you see, loved ones, outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ, our works are meaningless. And it's not just me telling you this. God's prophet Isaiah makes it crystal clear in in chapter 64 of Isaiah, verse 6. We are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. In closing, I want to leave you with you today the words of the Apostle Paul, a message that over the years has brought me great comfort when I was trying to please God by chiefly focusing on those things that I do. I remember one proud day I even challenged Satan himself to test me. How foolish was I? How foolish and how miserably I failed. Instead of looking at what Christ had did for me, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not of yourselves, it is a gift from God, not of works, lest anyone should should, should boast. We are his workmanship, created in Jesus Christ for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. Thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, That you have revealed these hidden things, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and revealed them to babes. May your words bring us more and more to set our minds upon you. May you bring us into a deeper understanding of your words this week as we go forth, as you send us out as salt and light to the world. May we keep the goodness of your gospel in the forefront of our minds and be strengthened by it each and every day till we return next week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.